0: Hello, and welcome to episode 164 of Talk. I am Ian Petschnick here, as always,
1: with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, and welcome to episode 164. Ian, how are you? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you, sir? Great. It's a good week. The weather, we
0: finally got a week of spring. Not too hot, not too cold. The windows were open. The breeze was blowing. It was very nice, and I'm sure it'll all go away much too soon, and then I'll get to complain about how hot it is.
1: Well, yeah, because this weekend it's supposed to be 90 degrees in New York, but I don't care because I'm going to Canada where it's going to be cold. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. You're going to Tor-
0: – Toronto's not – It's not going to be cold in Toronto.
1: I mean, if you read my tweets, if you read every single one of my tweets today, like you should, and I know you do, you would know that it's going to be in the 50s in Toronto this weekend, even though it's only – It seems like it's not that far away, but it is. It's going to be almost 50 degrees colder there. You're on Twitter? I never heard of it. Huh, interesting.
0: We have a very good show for you this week. Uh, The highlight of the show will be someone much smarter than both Jason and I will be on to tell us more. Combined. To tell us much more about what is happening in the drama that is Frontier, Spirit, and JetBlue. CNBC's airline reporter, Leslie Josephs, will join us later in the program to inform us all what is going on and, and walk us through... JetBlue's hostile bid for Spirit and the Spirit's board's Reaction, and Frontier, who's just kind of waiting over here with a
1: a sack full of money going, anytime you want us to hand this over, we'll do so. I think we'll have to bump Leslie up to our official podcast airline merger correspondent. (laughs) We're going to have to issue our sandwich punch card. We might take it away from Jeremy and give it to Leslie. We only have one punch card? Yeah, we only have one, and he hasn't redeemed it yet, so it's Leslie's now okay I, I hope Jeremy doesn't listen
0: to this episode but let's start with an update of a story that we talked about with much incredulity last week the passenger who landed the Cessna in in Palm Beach sorry. West Palm Beach West Palm Beach and the passenger landed the flight we talked about all that last week an update to say that the pilot, is going to be okay. The medical issue that caused the pilot to not be able to operate the flight anymore, they got him to the hospital. He went through surgery and he is going to be okay. He had what is called the I'll, I'll quote because I'm certainly no medical professional.
1: You are not a doctor and this is not a
0: medical podcast. No, decidedly not. And I've never played one on TV. The patient underwent surgery, I'm quoting now, the patient underwent surgery for an aortic dissection, a life-threatening emergency in which a tear occurs in the inner layer of the body's main artery. It has a high mortality rate without surgical treatment. The patient was released from the hospital on Monday. His cardiothoracic surgeon, Dr. Nishant Patel, is optimistic about his prognosis and plans to give a full update later this week. So, I not wow. only did the passenger land the plane, he landed it in enough time so that they could get the pilot to the hospital and save his life.
1: Yeah, so this guy saved not only all two passengers and the pilots on board, but literally saved the pilot's life by landing not not even just landing, but on the first attempt. If he had to go around and maybe mm-hmm. figure out what he was doing and and try again, that could have been enough time for the pilot not to get medical treatment and I guess, right place, right time, because this pilot easily could have been in, in some small Caribbean outpost and have the same medical condition occur where he'd be absolutely nowhere near a level one trauma facility. So, this is, uh, seems like the stars aligned being where they were, when they were, with a passenger level headed enough to land the plane on one attempt.
0: I mean, b- besides the pilot having a life threatening
1: medical condition, Everything that needed to go right here went right. Pretty amazing. Let's not repeat that again. Let's let's not have that again. But if it does, uh, let, let's get that passenger on board again. <laughs> you're, you're only you're only going to be flying with Darren Harrison from now on. Huh? Yeah. Pretty amazing. It has not become any less of, of an amazing story. No, since we talked no. about it last, week. E- even more so. I mean, the, the
0: fact that the 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 pilot's going to be okay it makes it even more amazing than before. Let's talk about a, another update the a big story that came out this week in the Wall Street Journal and that others have been following up this story was broken the 17th of May so on Tuesday we're recording the 18th and a few other news articles have come out about it I'm referring to the Wall Street Journal report that is quoting unnamed US officials that have seen a preliminary assessment of what happened to China Eastern 5735 and that assessment according to those unnamed officials includes the the belief that this was an intentional act either by one or, or both pilots to intentionally bring down the aircraft the wall street journal article quotes the the unnamed us official saying that the flight data from one of the one of the black boxes indicated that someone in the cockpit intentionally crashed the plane from what we know from the ADSB data, it's certainly possible that this was an intentional act. But what we know it wasn't was something similar. And I think we talked about this a few episodes back, but I just want to reiterate. We know that it wasn't similar to the German wings crash when the pilot Adjusted the autopilot values, the, the selected uh, altitude values on the mode control panel, to, to be basically ground level. So, whatever happened, it wasn't the altitude change in the autopilot. For their part, the Chinese authorities have said that this is irresponsible to, to issue speculation, but they, they have not said anything denying. The, the validity of these assessments. The airline has not said anything. Uh, the NTSB has not said anything. They d- declined to, to comment, as they always do on investigations. Plus, this is not the NTSB's investigation. It is the Civil Aviation Administration of China's investigation. They also did not uh, respond to to comment uh, requests for comments from from a variety of news sources, especially the Wall Street Journal. So an interesting window into what US officials are seeing in the the data from the black box. I I think one of the important things here is that they have at least one of the, the black boxes based on the Wall Street Journal's reporting. It's a flight data recorder. What we don't know is if the cockpit voice recorder, which would give a much clearer indication of what was happening on the flight deck if that has been repaired enough in order to retrieve the data that is on that recorder.
1: Yeah. It's a little disappointing to me that some US official with insight and knowledge about what happened here would, would speak before the Chinese authorities had a chance to issue any sort of statement or a or, or report on this since it's really, it's the Chinese authorities place to do this. So it's disappointing in that regard. But if, if nothing else, like you said, Ian, it's good to know that something off one, at least one of the two black boxes from this crash was salvageable since that was looking to be possibly questionable since they were so greatly damaged. So at least they got something out of it. I guess we'll we'll have to wait and, and find out what more they were able to retrieve off that once uh, China is able to get a little further into its investigation. Exactly, exactly.
0: We'll leave that there for now. Anything else would be—I—I I don't even know what beyond pure speculation is a grade A speculation. I'm not sure, but we'll leave that there and and move on. So a few weeks ago, we talked about an Embraer E one seventy five that was traveling in the southeastern United States and had to divert to Birmingham because it lost part of the wing. Not. A critical for flight part, the, the winglet came off, uh, so the aircraft was was never in danger of any flight issues. But You'd never want that to happen. Brazilian regulators, Embraer being a Brazilian company, so Brazilian regulators are now saying, check those wingtips for cracks
1: just to make sure that your winglets don't fall off. That's good. That's good. I'm flying on American Eagle operated by Republic Airlines E170 and E175s in the next couple of days. So maybe before we take off, I'll ask the pilot, "Can you go give the the winglets a little jiggle and see if there's a crack in them?" If we hit any turbulence, I would prefer the winglet to stay on the wing. I, I mean, all things being equal,
0: I would like to arrive with the same number of aircraft parts that I departed with. It's important. That's I, I well, that's one of the checklists I am.
1: Yeah. Or sure. if it does fall off, can I keep it? Ah, the answer to that I know is is an unequivocal no. Speaking of which, we have not heard any news about <laughs> recovering the winglet that fell off that E one seventy five. Over where? Where was it again? It was like it was Alabama. S- south,
0: yeah, it was southeast of Birmingham, Alabama. I doubt. I mean, unless they're really looking for it, I doubt you're going
1: to find. We've it. seen crazier. Remember, they they salvaged the the parts of the Air France A three eighty engine in. The godforsaken icy tundra of what was it, Greenland? Yeah, they needed those parts to understand what had happened. So, if they the really furniture. want to, they can do it. But in yeah, this case, I mean, uh, how badly does Embraer want that winglet? I, I don't think they do,
0: unless it fell into somebody's backyard. I, I don't think probably they, they would have heard by out. now. Exactly. So here's another interesting little tidbit. One that I will preface by saying. This news comes as part of a lawsuit against the airline, and therefore is much more tilted. The the information coming out is much more tilted to the narrative of the plaintiffs. That said, here's what's happening. A new filing in a lawsuit against Southwest Airlines, which is... The lawsuit itself is is actually an interesting one, and I use interesting in the slightly disapproving sort of way. There is a class action lawsuit suing Southwest Airlines that says they knew there were issues with the MAX aircraft and they didn't say anything in order to inflate travel demand so that they could sell more tickets. So the, the plaintiffs that are suing Southwest and it's really the law firm suing Southwest Airlines here is alleging that they paid too much for their tickets and they need a refund. The people who brought tickets on a Southwest 737 MAX between the first and second MAX crashes. Setting uh, that part aside- I don't follow that logic at all, but continue. uh, Setting that part aside, the news here is that the filings allege that Southwest proposed it, It doesn't say if this was ever enacted. It doesn't say if they ever moved beyond the proposal. But they proposed adding a sensor to 1737 800 NG in order to say that, in order to be able to say that it was installed on one of the NGs, therefore it wasn't new on the MAX.
1: And, and by therefore, it, you, you mean
0: MKS?
1: this sensor or this no, sensor? No, no, this this no. What it was, just the sensor.
0: Yeah. So it, it was the, the alert sensor for the a new flight control safety alert required for the MAX. And they would install it on the MAX or install it on the NG and then deactivate it once the MAX was certified. The lawsuit is alleging that the sole purpose of this installation would be to say that the alert was not new on the MAX and therefore wouldn't trigger additional pilot training for Southwest. It's partially sealed, so we don't know yet if this was ever acted upon, but it does offer a window into the fact that Southwest, I should note that Southwest, quote, vigorously disputes the plaintiff's characterization of the facts in this lawsuit. So they're not disputing the facts. But they are disputing the plaintiff's characterization, so this yeah. will be interesting to see how, how much comes of this. The, the interesting thing here is that it, it provides a bigger window into Southwest's very, very strong desire to have as little pilot training for the jump from the NG to the max as possible. We, we've talked about this a number of times before. We've talked about it in the context of Southwest having Boeing. Basically, Boeing would owe, if training was required, if, if, beyond, if simulator training was required for uh, the jump from the NG to the, to the MAX, Boeing would pay Southwest a million dollars in airplane That was just for simulator training. But this gets into even additional training where they wanted to have classroom training be off the table. And eventually what happened was pilots moving from the NG to to the Max were able to complete a training course on an iPad, and then they were qualified to fly the 737 Max. This kind of lends more to Southwest's desire to have as little differences training as possible for the the pilots moving from the NG to the MAX.
1: Yeah. We'll definitely have to wait to see what else is revealed in the lawsuit to see not only the characterization, but to see what facts are true and untrue in this once the documents become a little more unsealed. But that is interesting to say the least, that Southwest possibly had a, a much bigger hand in the MAX developments than we previously knew. Yeah.
0: so Definitely something we're going to be keeping an eye on. I don't like that we've had to pay such close attention to lawsuits lately. I would much prefer to to talk about aircraft. And so I'm going to completely change the subject now and move on to some good news about actual aircraft. And Jason, I would love for you to tell me about ATR's new proposed
1: next step. Okay, so you've heard of the Max before, obviously we just talked I about have. it. You've heard of the Neo, I have. You've heard of that. Have you heard of the Evo before? Go on. And it's not a Mitsubishi, you know, sports car. It's the (laughs) ATR Evo family, uh, which is ATR's response to Embraer's next generation turboprops. This is not the, I guess, enhanced version of the engineering that will end up on the ATR 72 next year. This is a totally new step up, a new generation of the ATR, which will be available by 2030. There's not a ton of details for this. For one thing, there is no engine yet. Um, so They're making a lot of claims that saying overall, the ATR Evo family will have 20% overall fuel improvement and 100% sustainable aviation fuel compatibility and when there's 100% SAF use, its emissions will be close to zero, but they don't actually have an engine selected yet. I think they've put out proposals to the engine manufacturers to come back to ATR to spec out an engine and deliver that at some point in the near future to ATR. But yeah, we have the Max, we have the Neo. Now we have the Evo. And they are claiming, again, 20% lower fuel burn, 20% overall maintenance cost reduction, which I'm pretty sure is a a big deal. But it claims, uh, they are claiming it means that Airlines using this ATR Evo can serve thinner routes more profitably. Communities can benefit with more connectivity, more essential services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the very end, it says in the coming months, ATR will work with airlines and engine manufacturer system providers with the aim to officially launch the program by 2023. So I guess this isn't really an aircraft launch. It's a teaser after Embraer announced its future plans. Especially interesting that they don't actually have an engine selected for this thing yet, but they do have eight years to figure that out.
0: It's an interesting concept. If they can deliver on the numbers, I, I think it's even more interesting. But writ large, the, the changes in... I, I feel like this is maybe something that we haven't talked about enough. The changes in the aerospace industry at the moment, manufacturers can say whatever they want at this point. All of these things are really going to be driven whether or not engine manufacturers can deliver on all of these proposed improvements or projected
1: improvements. Especially here when they say new power plant with hybrid capability, but then they don't actually really get into the detail of what hybrid capability that would be, because SAF doesn't count. SAF, you can put in a a current day aircraft. You can put that in an NG. You can put that in a 320CO. So What exactly do they mean by hybrid capability? Is that Electric powered, is that hydrogen powered? Is it something else we haven't heard of? We don't know at this point. but like you said,, it's a lot uh, a lot of a lot of efficiency boosts are are going to rely on what the engine manufacturers can deliver. And we saw that there was a fair bit of teething issues, I would say, with the geared turbofan engines of the last generation of new aircraft. The next couple years, or maybe the next decade, are going to be very interesting to see what en- engine manufacturers are going to be able to reliably deliver. Yeah, absolutely. It looks nice, though. There, there's that. There is that.
0: Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk with Leslie Josephs about what is going on between JetBlue and Spirit and learn a little bit more about what a hostile takeover looks like these days in the airline industry. Oh, boy. So stay with us. We'll be right back. <music> Welcome back. We are once again joined by Leslie Josephs, who is the airline reporter at CNBC and has been covering what is happening between Spirit, Frontier, and their suitor du jour JetBlue. Leslie, thank you for coming back on the show to explain what's going on now.
2: Thanks for having me. Um, I think at any point in the last month, if we took a pause to see what was happening, it would still be a lot. But now it's a lot, a lot. So since JetBlue gave the surprise bid $3.6 billion in early April for Spirit Airlines, which already had a deal with Frontier Airlines, Spirit came back and said, okay, we're going to consider it. A few days later, or close to a month later, really, Spirit said, you know what, we're going to stick with Plan A and our $2.9 billion cash and stock deal with Frontier, a fellow uh, ULCC, of course. JetBlue took a few days They came back this week with a hostile bid, a campaign to go after JetBlue shareholders directly, which is what's known as a tender offer. So, JetBlue's original offer was for $33 a share, worth about $3.6 billion. They're going directly to shareholders and offering $30 a share, a little bit lower, about $3.3 billion. And just appealing directly since the JetBlue, the spirit board rather, has turned them down. They are also launching a proxy campaign and urging JetBlue uh, spirit shareholders to vote no on the deal with Frontier at the June 10th shareholders meeting. So June 10th is kind of like the drop dead date when we're going to have some definitive news on this.
1: So basically what happened... The first time was JetBlue went to Spirit. Spirit's board said, "No, we don't like this. Please go away." And what makes this hostile? What the second second offer here is that JetBlue has gone directly to Spirit's stockholders or shareholders and said, "We think you should vote against this and kind of override the Spirit board of directors." Is that? It's kind of a just it.
2: tactic. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's 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 a pressure tactic. This offer is is lower. This thirty dollars a share that you know JetBlue is offering the shareholders of of Spirit directly lower than the thirty three dollars that they originally offered uh, to the Jet, to the Spirit board, and they're trying to pressure them. You know, we could end up with less money. We could do this anyway. Pressure the Spirit board to reconsider and consider our offer, which is significantly more money. Then we get into a host of other challenges, which is the execution of this merger, and even if it gets past regulators, which is the core of what Spirit's argument is against this deal, that it's not going to get through the DOJ.
1: Has JetBlue changed anything about its offer this time? I can't imagine they'd just walk up and, and make the same offer and expect the shareholders to come to a different decision than the board. Is the deal different
2: at all this time around? Well, it's less. So I mean that that seems significant. <laughs> so that is a, a compelling thing. I mean JetBlue's offer for Spirit was was much higher than what Frontier was willing to pay, or Frontier, Frontier's owners are were willing to pay for Spirit. So there's like a, a disconnect in money. The question with this whole deal is: is money everything? Is it going to pass regulators? Is it? Possible to execute this deal? Will this administration be okay with taking out a ULCC from the US market in an election year when we have high inflation and everyone's freaking out about the cost of everything? So there are a whole host of questions. JetBlue did make some tweaks earlier uh, in May to the deal. Part of it, I mean, they did offer a $200 reverse breakup fee for the deal in case regulators don't approve it. They also offered to give up some of, if the deal is consummated, give up some of the Spirit assets, New York, Boston, some of the Fort Lauderdale assets that would be a little bit possibly more palatable to regulators. But that remains to be seen. And then we get into like the whole logistics of what does this airline look like? JetBlue wants to essentially eliminate the Spirit brand, you know, yellow planes and all. We talked about paint (laughs) last time, but Spirit is, you know, synonymous and it's a big part of the cultural landscape and it's synonymous with ultra low cost travel and, and that whole idea of getting a cheap fare and, and you pay for whatever else you, you tack on. Frontier is a very similar model. And the two of them have Bill Frankie as a common, they share DNA uh, between them. So JetBlue has been arguing publicly how this is essentially was an arranged marriage and spirits board was negligent in not doing its due diligence and considering the offer seriously. They accused Spirit's board of not giving them enough of their time to discuss. It was a few brief phone calls, about an hour, and they didn't open their books and they didn't give the same access to their books that they did for Frontier. So they, so Robin Hayes, the CEO of JetBlue, has just been very public um, about saying that you know Spirit didn't do everything that they, they should have done to have this offer, which is again, more money.
0: The crux of, of JetBlue's argument doesn't really seem to be... They're not really arguing that this is good for any... I mean, they, they are on the face of it arguing that this will be good for consumers, it'll be good for airlines, it'll be good for spirit shareholders and things like that. But really, the crux of their argument is we are offering more money to spirit shareholders. Full stop. That seems to be the only thing that they're focusing on.
2: And they get planes. I mean, mean, for JetBlue's sake, they see this, see the acquisition of Spirit. And they also said that they have been considering this for a very long time. But Frontier kind of came in in February and and really piqued their interest and got things going. But they said that they had been thinking about this earlier, but they had not made an offer for for Spirit earlier. Frontier did. Or they reached this agreement. But for JetBlue, for their own strategy, you know, Robin Hayes has said this is going to turbocharge their growth. They have compatible fleets. They have order books that are you know, pretty easily <laughs> feathered in together, pilots which are in short supply going forward. So JetBlue says that this, if this doesn't go through, it doesn't sound like they have another airline they're interested, you know, waiting in the wings. This is something that JetBlue says that is crucial for them to expand in, in the future.
0: What's really interesting to me is that the argument that JetBlue is making is not this is going to be good. For consumers. I mean, that's not the very strong argument that they're making. And Spirit has said that the biggest reason we are saying no to you is not the money, it's because we don't think you can get this past regulators. The incongruence between the arguments that JetBlue is making that the shareholders should approve this because there's money involved or more money involved than, than the Spirit thing, even though it seems on the face of it to have a much, much less likely chance of being approved by federal regulators. Is an interesting choice to me.
2: In, in some of JetBlue's language, they do say that this would be good for consumers. And, and JetBlue is kind of, I think we called it like quarter life crisis sort of thing, where they're you know, almost 25 years old. They're trying to be all things to all people. And they consider themselves a low cost airline. And they, they say that this merger would continue you know, that legacy and uh, give, bring more low fares to consumers, although I don't know how that's possible at these fuel prices. But that is part of the argument. But JetBlue is also has a business class for some of its flights. Like, is it low cost? Or it, in, there aren't low fares pretty much anywhere anymore. But it's a, definitely a different model than Spirit and Frontier of ULCCs, like these bare bones. You know, no seat back screens, as bare bones as you can get and the fee model and JetBlue wants to if it does acquire Spirit wants to get rid of that and then they have to present their case in front of regulators in front of a DOJ that has already sued to block JetBlue's agreement with American Airlines one of the big four airlines that they say are they're trying to challenge in terms of US market share so Spirit said like well as long as the NEA is there the Northeast Alliance that you have with American we don't think that this is going to get through and JetBlue thinks that the NEA is crucial to its own future and refuses to give it up. So it's kind of like lose-lose. They don't really yeah. have anywhere to budge from that.
1: And JetBlue does talk a bit about the self-named JetBlue effect. And at the same time, you have Spirit saying, well, hold on, that's, that's not really a thing. That doesn't actually do anything. Your fares aren't really any lower in markets that you enter." That may have been a thing when you started operations in the year 2000, but take a look around, like you mentioned, Leslie, and JetBlue fares are, they are not cheap these days.
2: Yeah, I don't think there are any cheap fares anymore. And that's something that, again, like it's an election year, we have like a presidential coming up, like around the corner. When you have high inflation, our regulator is going to be okay with taking out an ultra low cost airline that many passengers can't afford. So that's a huge hurdle in either case. I mean, both of these mergers, either deal is going to have a very high hurdle to pass regulators. There are concerns about jobs, there's concern about pricing power, and all of these things are going to come to light. But both of them do have to pass a DOJ that's very tuned in to what both, like, they have a Mandate from President Biden to take a really close look and stamp out any anti-competitive practices, but we're in a time of very high prices, and will a merger, as it often does, will create you know even higher fares for consumers.
1: And there was a very interesting twist today, something that I did not see coming because this is quite a 180 from just a couple weeks ago. But one of JetBlue's key unions had actually issued a statement today. Tell us a little about that unexpected twist.
2: Yeah so the Transport Workers Union uh, which represents JetBlue's flight attendants they half a year ago ratified their first contract you know one of the biggest work groups at JetBlue pretty much supporting the deal John Samuelson who's the president of TWU said he was looking forward to having a combined spirit and and JetBlue flight attendant base and today pretty much did a complete 180 like you said and said that they do not, they reject the deal. they think it's going to be bad and pretty much trashing in JetBlue, which they have many labor battles with over work rules and their myriad grievances that have been filed over work rules, grueling schedules, contract violations, uh, allegations of that. and saying that Jet, calling JetBlue an abusive um, employer, <laughs> to which JetBlue fires back and said that the sudden change of heart is nothing more than a tactic to pressure the airline into adding a number of unrelated pay and benefits for our current in-flight crew members after just ratifying a five-year contract, and then uh, that TWU is asking for these immediate changes in exchange for their public support of the acquisition. So essentially, trying to blackmail JetBlue and pressure JetBlue. Into making these changes for their their crew members, so like either way, it's an ugly situation. JetBlue has labor problems; they have issues with attrition of their, with their pilots, especially young pilots. Very unusual, like the years that you're you're building up seniority. The JetBlue uh, executives have talked about that recently, and with their flight attendants, you know they they're hiring, but there have been a lot of complaints about very strict attendance policies, deterrence to calling in sick. Those things are are kind of on top of everything else. Meantime, a day before, uh, the Association of Flight Attendants AFA, which represents flight attendants at Spirit and Frontier, reached an agreement with Frontier's parent, which would essentially be controlling that merger is consummated, reaching a deal with some furlough protections, other worker protections for the deal, and throwing their support behind the deal. And that's a, a big labor hurdle. Um, not that it would necessarily stop the deal from happening, but it just kind of gives a little more harmony. Like one thing that Bill Frankie can like check off the list they go forward. So there's a brewing in the background. There's, a, there's also a, this labor drama happening.
1: So it sure sounds like nobody knows anything. Nobody knows if this is going to go through. And the fate of multiple airlines lays in the hands of spirit shareholders. And I think that vote comes up uh, mid-June, is it? So, so.
0: On the 10th of June, let's, let's talk about the, the mechanics. Well, yeah, What
1: happens that
0: day? That's a great question. So if, if, the, if the spirit shareholders vote yes, Obviously, on on this merger agreement, obviously, the merger moves forward and JetBlue, I assume, is out of luck. Leslie, what happens if they, in fact, vote no?
2: Well, then they'll have to go back and, and reconsider. So that would one of the criticisms that Ted Christie, the CEO of Spirit, has has thrown out lately is that JetBlue is just doing this to kind of stir things up to reject the Frontier Spirit deal, you know, that's like their the, the sole purpose. And JetBlue has rejected those ac- accusations, but then that deal is off the table. JetBlue's offer might not, you know, necessarily go away, but it does it it derails Frontier, and that combination.
0: This is an interesting question, and and I think it was Brett Schneider over at Cranky Flyer, who a couple of weeks ago, after the initial JetBlue offer, said that Spirit should. Take their $200 million reverse breakup fee because he didn't see a path forward with the JetBlue. But if they want to give Spirit $200 million, who are they to say no? Which I thought was kind of an interesting take on it. You know, take free money in some respects. But the other thing to think about is if this is in fact a dog chasing a car, what happens if, if the dog catches the car here?
2: In terms of calling their bluff,
0: yeah. I, I basically, I mean, what, what happens? So let's, for the, for the sake of argument for a second, say that this is just JetBlue trying to drive this price up right. for Frontier and, and make this more painful. What happens if Frontier says, all right, fine, and walks away, and then JetBlue and, and Spirit are, are left to merge? I mean, that seems like it could get even worse for both airlines, at least in the, the short and medium term, trying to figure out what, then what they have to do.
2: And then Frontier can just hang out and uh, and just rake it in. I think we've talked about
0: that before too, yeah. is it there's no, there's no way that Frontier really loses any way this ends up.
1: They can increase their footprint in, in New York and what is it the other city that they have to give up in? If JetBlue acquires Spirit, they're going to have to give up all their slots at LaGuardia well, sure and I'm sure Frontier would be yeah. front of the list to- uh, Fort Lauderdale, right? Yeah. Right. Right.
2: Yeah. And, and also in Florida, which is great for Frontier. I mean, they're not as big in Florida. It's, it's, more? Who
0: wouldn't want more, you know, more more slots in Florida?
2: I mean, the, the outcome is lawyers make a lot of money. Like the outcome is, let's say Jeff. Why like, is that always the outcome? Always. Bankers are making money <laughs> no matter what. They're like, someone's going to have a nice summer. So, I mean, if JetBlue and Spirit are left to merge, it, it's going to be tied up for a very long time in with regulatory things, if it even gets through, like in terms of, you know, assets that both of those airlines will have to give up. I don't know if Spirit, of what JetBlue is offering in terms of giving up Spirit's assets will be enough to satisfy at least this DOJ. I don't know who would be running the next one, if it even drags out that, that long. And... You have airlines that are still trying to recover from, from COVID. And yes, demands like the airports are crowded. Like we all know the airports are crowded and, and fares are going up. But the footing is like kind of shaky. Fuel prices are really high. They have high labor expenses. They're trying to hire. They're buying a lot of planes over the next, you know, and paying for them over the next several years. And and this could be something that is a big distraction. And when JetBlue launched their... They said they were launching this tender offer and this hostile move, their shares fell. Their shares were down like 6%. Frontiers were up 6 And I think Spirits was up like 14%, 15%. So their shareholders seemed pretty happy. And JetBlue's shareholders don't seem thrilled that they're going down this path the hostile way or even kind of sticking, yeah, with, I, sticking with the Spirit. Can't get like you that.
1: mentioned, there are Airlines are still on shaky footings right now, and as we speak this summer, JetBlue is having to reduce quite dramatically in, in some cases its own schedule because, it, like a lot of airline other airlines are doing, because it just can't run the operation that it scheduled. So, if I were a shareholder in JetBlue, which I am not, I'd rather them get their house in order and operate flights on schedule and actually operate the cities where they said they're going to operate. I think they canceled for the entire summer, Boston to Vancouver, which was one of their marquee routes that they were supposed to launch this summer, not doing that anymore. So I would have preferred to see them actually run a good operation, but it seems like they have something much bigger in their eyes right now.
2: Yeah. And the shareholders and travelers, possibly more importantly, don't want them to be distracted. People want to get to where they they want to go and, and that should always be first. But I don't think that's how airline mergers have ever worked. <laughs> so <laughs> Well this is a whole bunch hasn't of fun. before. Yeah.
0: Well, either way we'll have much more of an answer on the 10th of June yes. and whichever way it goes, Leslie, I hope you'll come back and join us once more to discuss whether it worked out for Frontier or if we're going to be continuing this conversation to see if JetBlue and, and Spirit can get together. But I, I want to thank you for coming back and, and kind of walking us through some new airline hostile takeover territories new for me. I'll get the popcorn. <laughs> there's not
2: there's a lot there. of airlines left. <laughs> yeah. so.
0: Well, that yeah, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, that's
2: it? a different episode. <laughs>
0: Leslie Josephs is the airline reporter at CNBC. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome back. And I'm i am I'm thrilled that we got to talk with Leslie because A, I now know a lot more about the mechanics of what's happening. And B, I know that we can have Leslie back on to explain whatever happens on June 10th. and, and Like I said, I, I will get the popcorn. I feel like this is going to be uh, required watching.
1: We might need to go to Costco and get a case of popcorn. Ooh, now there's an idea. That is a good idea.
0: Let's close out the last part of the show with some quick things that uh, are, are worth noting, but we don't really have too much to say because we've either talked about it before or we don't know much yet. The first is good news in that all of the Pratt Whitney-powered 777s that have been grounded since the United flight blew an engine over Denver last year, those are on their way back into service. United will return those to service over time throughout the summer into the fall, but a much-needed boost in capacity for, for United moving on. The FAA has issued an airworthiness bulletin for the 777s and 787s that share some flight deck commonalities. This is in relation to a few of those low takeoff incidents, most notably the one in Dubai where the Emirates 777 didn't climb as it should. This particular bulletin goes through a lot of the things that airlines should make sure happen or don't happen in order to to ensure a, a safe departure. And then Jason's buying how many A350s are you buying? Is it you that are buying them? I'm confused. Six, What's happening?
1: Six. You're buying uh, six A. It's not me. I, I know you, you. you often confuse me with Turkish Airlines, but Turkish Airlines, in a literally one sentence investor relations release today, announced that it would take six A350s through the end of this year and next. And that's it. No additional details, nothing. We can only be led to assume that these are Aeroflot-bound A350s that can no longer go to Aeroflot, so they got to go somewhere. And Turkish is the lucky winner. All right, then. All right. That sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, we knew they'd go somewhere quickly, but not quite that Yeah, long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: that, I think that's the news here is that they, they got snapped up that fast. The first Comac C919 that will be delivered to a customer made its first flight late last week. That'll be a program to watch as, as they kind of move into the final phase of, of launching that aircraft and, and China becomes a competitor on the, the larger narrow body uh, manufacturing scale. So it'll be interesting to see how, how they can ramp that up and how that factors into the return of the 737 MAX in China. Because as we've talked about, a lot before, it's quite likely that the C919 will need to, to achieve delivery before the MAX is, is reintroduced.
1: Yeah. And I think I saw that some of the Chinese airlines have taken the, the MAX off of their fleet projections, at least for the remainder of this year. So what right. I thought was ready to go to be reintroduced in China seems like it's not. Deci- yeah, de- decidedly less ready. Yeah. And then, Jason,
0: you've been on an interesting kick that I know anyone who has ever been to a store that they've been to normally, and then gone to the one at the airport, and just wanted to gouge their eyes out because of the prices. New York is no stranger to that, but something's finally happening. That ha, they're maybe, finally maybe. maybe fixing this. Have you ever paid $27 for a beer? So the last time I was at JFK I think I paid 18 and that was a long time ago.
1: So so adjusted for inflation probably. Probably. But yeah, no secret here that our three airports, LaGuardia, Newark and JFK, uh, there are certain concession companies specifically named OTG which if you've ever been to one of our airports and ordered something forcibly through an iPad, you have been at a almost certainly at an OTG facility, turns out they were price gouging Against all sorts of rules and all sorts of reasonable belief that what they're charging could be within the realm of of acceptability. So, in early 2020, someone on Twitter sent out a picture that went viral of OTG, uh, I think LaGuardia Terminal C, charging $27 for like a Sam Adams seasonal beer, something that I would be upset if I paid $7 for at happy hour in any sort of restaurant. And this was systemic through all of their facilities at the airports that you'd pay $18 for a hamburger or $15 for a side of fries. and It was absolutely getting out of control at our airports. The cost for a bottle of water was $7 or things like that. And It got to the point where our lovely Port Authority of New York and New Jersey actually took notice and did a thing to resolve a problem, which is very rare if you've ever dealt with the Port Authority here. So they had rules in place that said concessionaires at our airports are only allowed to charge street pricing plus an additional 10%. But the rules were sufficiently vague and unenforced that companies just kind of charged whatever the hell they wanted for everything. And it got so bad to the point where the Office of Inspector General, the independent oversight, I guess, entity of the Port Authority investigated and found that, yep, companies are going Absolutely wild and charging whatever they want, and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. So the investigation—they had released all sorts of documents about the the pricing standards, how they're supposed to match an airport concession to the real world for street pricing. Like you cannot compare the deep blue sushi place in Terminal Five against Nobu, some or, or something like that for sushi. So it has to be a, a reasonable match, and if. Every concession company at a Port Authority airport doesn't suggest or submit a reasonable match to their own pricing. The Port Authority is just going to do it for them. So hopefully, it should already be in effect. But just last week, I was sleuthing around Starbucks' mobile ordering at airports, which is great that you can do now. But the price for a breakfast sandwich at Terminal 5 was $2 more than terminal 1 which was only slightly above street pricing so it seems uh, the message has not been received at all the concessions so the port authority said if you see any price gouging at one of their airports to uh, to tweet at them or to tag them on facebook or whatever i mean i highly suggest you do that because i don't think any of us should be tolerating a $27 beer at the airport
0: this leads us to kind of the last thing. I would love to hear the most ridiculous thing you've ever purchased at the airport.
1: Most ridiculous, as, as far as price wise, or pr- most ridiculous item?
0: No, not most ridiculous item. Uh, I mean, like, sure, that too. By all means, email us with that information too. I would love <laughs> to hear that. But for this specifically, I, I want to know, like, what's the what's the most ridiculous thing you've ever purchased at the airport as far as like food and beverage goes? Either you know the the, the price was incredibly astronomical or or something. I'd just love to hear kind of what it was and, and where it was. Emails at podcast at FR24.com and we can talk about some of those in, in the next episode or so. Airport prices are ridiculous. Everybody knows that. But these these were some of the worst.
1: Yep. The laws of economics cease to apply once you step inside the TSA checkpoint. That checks out.
0: All right, let's call it an episode. And we will be off for the week and then we will be next, back next week, hopefully with some some interesting stories about what, what you all find folks are, are buying at the airport. This has been episode 164 of AvTalk.
1: I am Ian Petchnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening.